You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. This is Annie Rose Malamet, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Jello Anal Auteurs Edition. Uh, Anal Auteurs Two and a Half. And I'm back with Kamikaze Jones. Hi. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back for this um, liminal episode of Anal Auteurs that we are uh, (laughs) riffing on the legacy of Kenneth Anger. um, And perhaps the anal and anal auteurs this time around is for anal retentive, but there's also some visceral anality intact. So we're excited to visceral anality, the solar anus. Yeah. (laughs) This episode is it's the solar anus. It is like, like Kamikaze said, it's liminal. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Um, Definitely, especially the solar anus um, by Georges Bataille in terms of uh, its adherence to parody and the occult and transvaluation, which are all things that are heavily explored in the entire filmography of Kenneth Anger. Oh my God, we're already we're already getting into. <laughs> we can't help ourselves. Uh, I we, there's so much to unpack. <laughs> I know we always joke that we're so overprepared for these episodes even we always think we're not we're always like i don't know or at least i am i'm like oh my god i don't know i mean there's so much like did we get did we get enough in there and then it's like 10 pages of notes yeah we are cramming the solar anus (laughs) so um kamikaze can you introduce yourself again for the listeners even though i'm sure they already know who you are uh, I'm yes, yeah, so I'm Kamikaze Jones. I am a licensed porn detective, uh, filth correspondent, arts editor of Wussy Magazine. I'm the host of Pure Garbage, an oral examination of John Waters, a podcast, a limited series historical podcast that I did last year that Annie was a very beautiful part of. And um, yeah, I'm also a performance artist and writer that deals primarily in queer pornographic archives and their materialities uh, and how generative they can be and the holes in those archives and what we can do to breed them. Oh, so many holes. <laughs> so for those of you, I'm, if you're listening to this, you, you're probably aware but that Kenneth Anger, pioneering experimental gay filmmaker and puckish Crowleyan edgelord <laughs> Kenneth Anger died this week last week this week last and, week yeah. yeah last week and um of natural causes and I believe he was 96 right and I yeah yeah I actually think last week it was his when his death was announced but he had actually died maybe some weeks before that um right. I think they were like they were settling his estate some estate stuff yeah and so we kind of pulled this episode together really quickly. I have always wanted to do an episode on Kenneth Anger. And now knowing Kamikaze, I think is the perfect person to talk about this with. And 
I was kind of requesting today. I like overslept my nap today and I was like, please, can you lead this episode? Because uh, I just feel like you're, you're I mean, I, I just think of you as like the sex magic, like heir of Kenneth Anger. I, oh my God. That's how I think of you. So, tic- so tickled that you think of me that way. And you know, I do think that you oversleeping is actually a good framework for this meandering elliptical episode that is, you know, riffing on the oneric impulses of Anger's oeuvre, so to speak. So, Ooh. I mean, like, you know, we're dealing a, a lot with unconscious motivation. So maybe you're primed in, in just the right way. Yeah, I was I was having beautiful satanic dreams. <laughs> <laughs> so what, who is Kenneth Anger? I mean, you know, again, I said, if you're listening to this, you probably already know, but Kamikaze, can you give us like a, like a little summary of who Kenneth Anger was? Yeah, so Kenneth Anger was born in Santa Monica, is de- definitely an L.A. girly, um, really just uh, immersed in the mythology of Hollywood from an early age, had a grandmother who spoiled him, who I believed worked in in set or costume design in Hollywood, and already the veracity of his, his um, biography and his upbringing becomes kind of an important part of his mythology. And when doing a lot of research for this episode um, in the past week, um, it reminded me of our previous Anal Tours episode, uh, Deconstructing the Self-Mythologizing of Fred Halstead, where there's a lot of, um, you know, um, I wouldn't say there's some self-aggrandizing, but there's also like creating these um, myths purposefully, which is also fitting that like his death was reported a couple of weeks later because um, there's just a lot of ambiguity around his timeline. He claims to have been a child actor in... Um, a, I think, MGM production of The Midsummer's Night Dream in the 30s, and he claims to have played the Changeling Prince. And a lot of accounts seem to substantiate or verify that, but then there's also, I think, some Hollywood studio archives that dispute that and claim that it was a, uh, a another child, like a girl actress that played that part. Um, so there's already this idea, yes, there's all that. And then there's also this like idea of continued ambiguity and veracity that becomes a big part of his work um, as, you know, a filmmaker, but also as like, you know, an infamous gossip columnist in a way. Um, and I think also lends itself um, in an interesting way to the idea of the occult and to manifestation. Um, and so basically he created his first film, Fireworks in 1947, uh, claiming that he was 17 when in fact he was 20. And a lot of people purport this to be this attitude surrounding his idea of himself as a young provocateur or an enfant terrible. Um, and Fireworks deals with a lot of tropes of American hypermasculinity. And this, as far as I can tell, is maybe before the idea of Aleister Crowley's religion, Philema, became really central to Anger's life and like the driving principle behind the rest of his later work. But it's really fascinating because a lot of the impulses of Thelema um, are readily apparent in fireworks from the get. Um, There's definitely this adherence to um, the cult of persona, to like American fatalism, but there's also this elemental energy of of fire, of ritual, of burning and um, cinema as ritual like one of his primary quotes and, you know, aphorisms, making a movie is casting a spell. Um, Or I've always considered movies evil. The day that cinema was invented was a black day for mankind. Although, of course, my definition of evil is not everybody else's. 
so it could be argued that this this nascent um, innate impulse for the occult and for esoteric knowledge and ritual was already pretty prevalent um, before he was aligned with the work of Crowley or with Thelema. Uh, so, and, and, and uh, I think with fireworks, you have this idea of cinema as ritual, the materiality of cinema, as well as what's depicted on screen, where you actually have Kenneth Anger uh, scratching the film stock to draw uh, halos of light around certain characters. And this idea of Lucifer being the light bearer and being the patron saint of the arts, um, the visual arts. Um, a lot of fire and light bearing and um, is prevalent throughout Anger's work. And there's also some issues around that because he considers Thelema to be a very masculine kind of occult art or religion that has the idea of, of fire being aligned with Mars or the god of war, or, you know, like fire being a, a, an innately masculine um, element. And then you have a lot of his other work that kind of deals more with this um, approximation of the divine feminine. Uh, you have later work like Ode Artifice, which is uh, shot in Italy at, um, I think it was a cardinal who was famous for despoiling uh, Hadrian's uh, castle. Uh, which is really funny because there's also a long legacy of Hadrian and like the deification of his lover Antonus um, and like the deification of a twink by his daddy as a, I was recently in Greece and we actually went to like the Eleusinian mysteries and uh, you know, found all of these, you know, remnants of sculptures of Antonus and like this idea that a, a twink could be deified after drowning in the river, um, which feeds very interestingly into Ode to Artifice because the whole film is suffused by the energy of spouting water and fountains. And apparently there's a rumor that it's because this cardinal that he was paying, that Anger was paying allegiance to was heavily into water sports. Um, so you have a lot of elemental forces at play. Uh, you have this American idea of fire and death and destruction. And then it's like later film, which has a European sensibility of play and exploration and fluidity and like, you know, um, just like the, the elements of water being transitional and transformative in a different way than fire is. Um, yeah, and that's just some of the earlier work. I, I was hoping you would bring up Fred Halstead because this idea of myth-making is really important to both of these artists, both of these directors. Kenneth Anger is perhaps... One of the things he's most famous for is writing the book Hollywood Babylon, which was first published in 1965, but then, you know, got banned and then was published again in, in 1975. And because of his supposed legacy of being a child actor, which, you know, Kamikaze said, like, we don't know how true that is. Um he wrote this very infamous gossip rag, uh, trashy book about old Hollywood gossip. And a lot of it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it goes between myth and fact very fluidly. And we were kind of talking about, before we recorded, we were talking about Karina Longworth's season about Hollywood Babylon on her show, You Must Remember This, which is excellent and very well researched. And if you if you want to know about what's true and what's not true, that is the place to go. And, and you should listen to that. 
However, we were also kind of talking about how beside the point that is of I think we we gays are not in the business of debunking today. No. Um, And I think I think the hyperbole espoused in Hollywood Babylon, which some of it has, you know, uh, definitely not aged well. No. I, I think I think gossip as a queer affect um, is the main point and also a reflection onto the impulses of American society. Yeah. So you have like a lot of these extreme, like kind of like, you know, like rumors of celebrity suicides and like these kind of like um, debaucherous orgies. And like, I realized that I had only really had um, the second edition of Hollywood Babylon, which came out, I think in the eighties. And also it's important to say that Hollywood Babylon was only published uh, in Europe um, and was quickly banned when it was first published in the U.S. and then reemerged ten years later and became really popular. And it's kind of like you know the mysticism of the tabloid, like the um, which is something that John Waters is definitely interested in, like the idea of like the National Enquirer creating like a a counter archive of like you know like American sensibilities or like you know like uh, a rich cultural text into the anxieties of of. America, much like porn can be. Um, so Hollywood Babylon for me is just more like incendiary poker face satirical fiction that is played straight um, and literally played straight to like kind of like, you know, like toy with uh, heteronormative expectations, arguably. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't think that the uh, point of it is to be accurate it's to be it's that puckishness again like what is real what isn't real and uh that is the whole you know kind of ethos of hollywood babylon and you know you have in your notes here the the james dean and marlon brando myth which i feel like is big for his work can you say a little bit more about that i certainly can so um that myth comes out of hollywood babylon 2 and it's very indicative of a lot of um anger's primary interests and also marlon brando and james dean both show up as fetish objects as well as like cultural effigies in in his film scorpio rising which deconstructs a lot of like homoerotic uh biker aesthetics, um, but also has an interesting thing to say about uh, American approximations of fascism. So James Dean and Marlon Brando, the myth in Hollywood Babylon is that James Dean was like a notorious S&M party sub and that Marlon Brando would take him to these like leather bars and use James Dean as a human ashtray. And all the daddies would just stub cigarettes out on James Dean's chest, which is just like the hottest and like also like the most hyperbolic thing. And like I will admit that having this book in high school, I was like, work. I 100% accepted that at face value. And I was like, that is canon. Like um, I still do. And- <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of like willing that into existence into like, you know, like the the public imaginary is also an extension of the occult, in my opinion. Um and an extension of a certain type of mysticism by using these cultural effigies or these these cultural um, symbols to 
create kind of a, you know, a puckish magical current in the universe. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if we clarified in the beginning, but um, the the de facto um, production company, which was really just um, Kenneth Anger getting funding wherever he could for his short films was called Puck Films. So it plays on this mythology of Puck from A Midsummer's Night Dream and the Changeling Prince and this idea of um, as above, so below, like, uh, you know, transubstantiation, alchemy, uh, appearances being deceptive. And also the idea of like, you know, um, ceremonial garments in the occult being invested with such um, mystical imbuement. Uh, and that leads to Anger's fascination with leather and with this idea of Marlon Brando and James Dean being in like an intense dom sub human ashtray situation. <laughs> so hot. Uh, and it I mean, it's like you said, it's 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 creating this magical current in the world. I mean, it's like manifesting the kink you want to see in the world. Yeah. Write the kink you want to see in the world. And in a way that brings brings us neatly to his involvement with certain other incendiary characters in like uh, the 1950s avant-garde, including the diarist slash uh, famed erotica writer Anais Nin, and also the uh, scarlet woman, whore of Babylon, uh, Marjorie Cameron, which is something that we could talk about for a long time. But that, um, for those of y'all who don't know, uh, Marjorie Cameron was basically the wife of Jack Parsons, who was a rocket scientist who was working with L. Ron Hubbard before L. Ron Hubbard started Scientology on a series of sex magic rituals called Babylon Working that come from Aleister Crowley. And one of the intents of the sex magic rituals was to summon the sacred whore or this whore of Babylon, the Scarlet Woman, in, and to have her manifest in like an actual human. So Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard were doing all these rituals and one day, uh, Jack comes home to his apartment and Marjorie Cameron is there um, as the guest of a friend who's staying there. And he, she has like fiery red hair and like, like piercing blue eyes. And he immediately sees her as this invocation of the, the Scarlet Woman that he's been seeking. So they get married and she was uninitiated in the occult before this. And then he dies in a dubious rocket explosion in his apartment. And she thinks that it might be because of anti-Zionists. And then she starts doing a series of rituals to continue his work. And that's when she gets involved with Kenneth Anger. And I think also the occult filmmaker, Curtis Harrington, who um, put her in Night Tide with Dennis Hopper. So she became like this really intense, often maligned figure of the occult that was subject to a lot of misogyny that was rampant in like occult circles at the time, but kind of forced her own path. and was like a brilliant visionary painter and like, you know, became this entity in a lot of experimental cinema. Um, and her and Anais Nin both starred in Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, which in a lot of ways is uh, the first culmination of like the occult in the most like direct way in the earlier part of Anger's work. Uh, I also wanted to mention, just because you had it in your notes, Puce Moment. Um, yes, we definitely should. And the fetishization of clothing and ceremonial garb, and on also your note here about popular songs as incantations. And I wanted to know what you were thinking about both of those things. I mean, in P Puce Moment, um, it's I forgot how beautiful it is when I rewatched it, and mm -hmm. it's always like interesting to see women in Kenneth Anger movies because 
the way that he approaches women is so different than the way that he approaches men. Um, it's more like goddess figures, whereas the men mm. are more like lived in um, and earthly is my that would be yeah. it would be my take more um you can touch them you can fuck them and the women are much more um objects of i mean men are objects of worship too but the women are objects of worship in like the way that the 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 fag worships the goddess it's very totally yeah it, if you if you want to run with yeah. that well, no, I was definitely, there's a lot of like camp worship, but there's mm -hmm. also that, that dovetails in a really interesting way with this idea of imminence or an imbuement and a lot of like, you know, um, you know, women being these vessels for the divine in, in occult practices. Whereas like, I'm not sure you would consider the way that he depicts men as base or devoid of mysticism, which is not the case at all, but there's definitely more of like a uh, possession yes. happening, like a, a deified possession in the way that he treats women in his films. And it it's interesting because there's still a lot of contemporary ideas. I really, I, I wish we had time to like kind of delve into maybe like a contemporary trans critique of Kenneth Anger's work, because I think there's a lot to be said about the way that like contemporary gay men fetishize trans women totally. in social circles. And I think- And that goes back to Fred Halstead too. Yeah, totally. From uh, in sex tool, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and hmm, that's so fascinating. And I think the idea that um, men are objects of worship and are also the practitioners of these certain rituals and then they summon or invoke these divine feminine archetypes. Right, that's kind of what um, I was getting at, yeah. Yeah, and the women are rarely facilitating or orchestrating these rituals. Right. Um, but they are needed for their completion. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Definitely, uh, we've been, Annie and I have been having a lot of conversations about uh, fag for dyke representation in the history of cinema this <laughs> totally i'm just thinking about how different like dyke art the the relationship is in experimental dyke film to like the figure of the goddess as opposed to in kenneth angers where there is such a remove there's such um old hollywood glamour camp sensibility where it's it, yeah it's just not because it, men are like you said men are deified too like it's not that they're not it's just that they they are the the facilitators and women are more statuesque and i mean statuesque in the sense of like idol worship right? like pure idolatry yeah, yeah. And the, the men take an active role in the ritual and the w women are uh, a passive role. And that kind of um, speaks to uh, the misogynist critiques of Aleister Crowley's work um, in, in a whole. Because I was recently just reading that he was like anti-abortion, which I think is hysterical. Like he was like, do as thou wilt. But like if, if you're really going to do what you really wanted, you wouldn't like abort your baby. Like that was kind of his take. Was, like, but he was also like kind of a social Darwinist. And... Um, and he also believed that when he was doing homosexual sex magic, he always had to be the bottom because of like a certain adherence to masochism. So there's a lot to be said about that. 
Um, yes. Uh, and yeah. And he also claimed to have numerous scarlet women throughout his life. Like these women that were the invocations of the, the whore of Babylon. And, uh, so Puce moment was also maybe perhaps before Kenneth Anger really turned to Thelema, but it still has the, the nascent, um, conceptualization of it where it's it's an adherence to this type of metaphysical drag or like this mystique that's involved with the hollywood starlet and the the fetishization of certain garments and silks and textures they're all superimposed over this image of a goddess rummaging like a hollywood screen goddess rummaging through her closet and that also brings me back to i was a big fan of Aeneas Nin's diaries when i was younger and oh, yeah, um, me too and she will, I remember her saying, I'm going to crudely paraphrase as well, but there's a big thing about the ritualization of, of costume, almost like I'm, it immediately makes me think of like, and that was the revolutionary costume of today. And it's kind of like that, where it's like she would dress for how she needed to manifest herself in the world. And like, she would dress as a warrior, she would dress like, and just like the occult properties of clothing and the materiality of, of imbuing certain garments with the aspects of ritual is very prevalent throughout all of Anger's work. Um, and and in, in Puce moment, you know, that definitely manifests as this kind of ritual. But getting back to what you were saying about pop music as incantation, that's something that like heavily informs a lot of my own work as an artist, where you could see music that exists in the popular imaginary as ty a type of um, immaterial archive or a counter archive especially in the way that it's used in a lot of anger's work to subvert the original intention of the music and to complicate its meaning um where you have like dream lover being used in custom car commandos which is a film about the fetishization of the motor vehicle from a homoerotic perspective um or you have leader of the pack playing during like you know a nazi salute in scorpio rising or during like you know an intense violent motorcycle crash um, I think that that we've talked about citationalism as a distinctly queer affect and repurposing um, the repurposing sonic hegemonies uh, for for queer pursuits. And I think Anger's work does that so beautifully and so provocatively um, by creating this kind of counter canon of of semiotics when it comes to how queer people relate to popular music. And because you've done the pure garbage series on John Waters, I have to bring him up too, because they're, um, I think Kenneth Anger is like 20 something years older than John Waters, but they're kind of, they use a lot of very similar music in their work. Um, you know, romantic fifties and sixties pop songs. And how do you think that the way John Waters uses music is different or similar to how Kenneth Anger uses it? Oh, that's such a great question. I honestly feel like ritual is more apparent in Anger's use of music, like ceremony, like the idea that this mu this music can be used to uh, to manifest. Uh, where and I think they both use it for the uh, for subversion and for uh, camp appeal uh, and and that much and for transvaluation. Uh, but I think perhaps Waters 
he always claims to be non-political in his work, but I kind of gently disagree with that. Like totally. I think his work is yeah. inher inherently political. Um, and I do agree that Angers is too, but I think that the music is chosen as an aspect of the ceremony, as a way of divining uh, will from, you know, popular American culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find that so fascinating because even the idea of like, you know, like covering a song or interpreting a song has its own occult sensibility because um, you're imbuing it with your likeness, with your energy, with your aura. Um, and then refracting it out into the world. That is resonating with me so much right now because I saw The Cure on Saturday and I brought a uh, brooch I have, like a, a Black Widow spider brooch. And I was like hoping that uh, they would play Lullaby so I could like charge my brooch with it. I've been feeling really witchy lately. Anyway, yeah, I think that that's a really good um distinction is that the songs are very much part of the ritual where it's like in it, it's like going it's very much invoking meaning in the song like with leader of the pack and like running with that meaning and like elevating it to this other place whereas john waters use of songs is more like um in friction with the music and um you know, he obviously loves the music, but he's also like transgressing it and like subverting and perverting it. So whereas like Kenneth Anger, I don't know if this is the right word, but it's like almost like a little bit more sincere. Um, like it's but but not because this is Puck we're talking about. So it's more like you said, it's more like an invocation. Um, so. I will just say before we 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 sag is that um the idea that all of these films are meant to be magical objects and by utilizing music which is often used in in ceremonies across you know religions or across like practices it creates a particular affinity for the occult that implodes like the American subconscious and uh, that's really fascinating to me is like it, I I think that all this music from his films. I, I, it imbues my life with a, a very particular and distinct meaning. And you could think of like this kind of like 1950s, like American doo-wop music as like a portal into different queer temporalities in the way that he uses it. Yes. And okay, we have to talk about this because this I didn't know about between the ages of 11 and 16 while studying at Beverly Hills High School, Anger made seven short films which have never been shown, and they were lost or destroyed in 1967 when Anger publicly burned his work. Shortly before taking out a full-page advertisement at the Village Voice, announcing his own death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he was a he was a he was a messy bitch who lived for drama. That yeah. much is certain. Um, yeah. Recently. Bruce, our Bruce the Bruce came out with a, a an Instagram anecdote about anger putting a hex on him uh, because, oh yeah, yes. Yeah. So Bruce the Bruce, I think his character in Hustler White is named Jurgen Anger. It's a portmanteau of two different directors, and the the whole joke is like any relation to Kenneth throughout the whole film in Hustler White. And Kenneth Anger was apparently so mad about 
Bruce using his name in that way that he put a hex on him and then claimed to a friend that he wanted to bury him in a desert and like uh, rub his head with a cactus or something like that. So, so Kenneth definitely was a messy bitch who lived for drama. And also something else that's really interesting to me is like how much time he spent with Kinsey actually contributing to the Kinsey archive. Um, and I was reading something recently where a lot of his contributions to the archive are his own films, but also films of other queer avant-garde filmmakers um, and also just objects and ephemera that are only tangentially related to the idea of sexuality, but provide kind of like a, a deviant, almost like uh, peripheral cultural context for how capitalism has shaped contemporary sexuality and stuff of that nature. Um, and then speaking of the archive, Gloria Swanson was so mad about what Kenneth Anger said about her in Hollywood Babylon that she sued him for libel. And he responded by sending her a series of uh, cursed and or enchanted objects, one of which being a footlong coffin filled with sugar. Um, because apparently Gloria Swanson would go on a lot of public tirades uh, against uh, junk food. So... <laughs> <laughs> this is so good <laughs> yeah he was a fucking troll man he was the original troll the og troll yeah and i mean he also um speaking again of karina longworth um if you ever want to find out how kenneth anger was involved with the some of the figures in the manson murders like bobby Beausoleil, that's uh her um season on Charles Manson is it talks a lot about um Kenneth Anger and his occult practices of the time and what a messy bitch he was so <laughs> again another parallel with John Waters who has a friendship with Leslie Van Houten right mm -hmm. um totally one of the Manson women so it, John Waters seems to be like more oriented towards women if we're yet yeah, again talking about women and um gay men he seems to um i feel like john waters female the women that he uses is it's like more embodied um more he definitely gives them more agency yeah a lot more agency exactly <laughs> yeah yeah um so moving on to uh inauguration of the pleasure dome which you've talked about a little bit uh Tell me more about Athelma and um, Lucifer as a teenage rebel. I can definitely do that. So yeah, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome came out of like uh, a like trendy salon party called uh, "Come Dressed as Your Own Madness," where a lot of people that were loosely involved okay, in the avant-garde and the cult. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, we totally should. Yeah. <laughs> That can be your next birthday party. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of the, the outfits that are featured in Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome were the original outfits that certain people wore to that party. So Aeneas Nin came dressed as Estart, um, who's considered uh, a sex goddess, but also a goddess of the moon with a birdcage over her head. And then I believe someone came dressed as the somnambulist from the Isle of Dr. Caligari. And then there were a couple of other occult figures. There was Callie. There was, um, I think, 
the satanic beast. Uh, and they basically, in inauguration of the pleasure dome, there is this fetishization of like certain talismans or jewels that are associated with certain divine archetypes. And I think the idea of alchemy is most apparent in this work where he, he achieves this kind of magical effect through superimposition and through like the collapsing of temporal narratives and and uh these you know archetypes are partying together and like they they drink the wine of ecstasy and then things go awry or do they or it's this um this ambivalent metamorphosis or this like invocation of of certain archetypes that anger hopes to communicate with in the material world um and that is pretty much the apotheosis of his the first phase of his career before moving into more i think directly occult influence works with uh culminating in lucifer rising uh which he received a lot of funding for uh, that also had like a one incarnation that was scrapped and became the material used for invocation of my demon brother which has glimpses of mick jagger but also music by mick jagger on the moog synthesizer um anger was like really hobnobbing with a lot of like countercultural figures like had a had a friendship and then a falling out with jimmy page um, was friends with Marianne Faithful and Anita Pallenberg. Even before this, he submitted uh, fireworks to a festival where Jean Cocteau um, awarded it uh, the first prize for like poetic film, um, and they became really close. Um, so he had a lot of you know support in Europe and like the expat community and a lot of countercultural icons, and a lot of his later work focuses on these more concentrated occult rituals, be it um, kind of like, well, I guess you could argue that it's uh, a denouncement of fascism in Scorpio Rising. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting things to be said about Custom Car Commandos, which is a three minute short detailing a very homoerotic polishing of like a beautiful vehicle against a pink backdrop. Uh, to the song dream lover and thinking of the car as like an occult object especially to americans and the idea of you know thinking of jg ballard and like you know the fascination with the jane mansfield crash or thinking about the fascination with the james dean crash and how it's a an exertion of american fatalism and like a death ritual and like you know i think there's a quote that kenneth anger says that scorpio rising was polished chrome leather and thanatos and bursting jeans um, so this idea of the American death drive as like a, as an externalizing these occult practices through that is heavily prevalent in that later work. And then score, uh, Lucifer rising, uh, which was one of his final films of that period deals with this idea of Thelema that is the Aeon of Horus. So in Thelema, there's three Aeons. There's, uh, the Aeon of Isis, which is uh, when the world was ruled by a matriarchal presence. There's the Aeon of Osiris, which is uh, when the world was ruled by a patriarchal presence. And then through Lucifer Rising, Anger hopes to explore the Aeon of Horus, which is the age of the child, and therefore synonymous with the, the return of Lucifer, the light bearer, the precocious teen rebel, who's the patron of the visual arts and the patron of, of magic and revelation and knowledge. And you see this kind of, I mean, we as queer people undergo multiple puberties, but you see this a lot in Anger's work to an extent where like, even in fireworks, like the ritual of fire of revelation of like sexual discovery is so important. So inextricably linked to the idea of explosion to like, you know, something incendiary to this, like, you know, light bearing. And that theme continues 
so prominently throughout the rest of the work, um, even in Lucifer Rising, where he had, you know, the funding to shoot in Egypt with actual, like, you know, like pyramids and like, you know, divine artifacts. And, and I think we could dedicate a whole other episode to the use of Egyptology in like Kenneth Anger's work. Um, but, you know, we're just two gays doing our best. <laughs> yeah, truly, like, this is such rich territory. Like, you could go in so many directions here. Like, if you, if you guys haven't familiarize yourself with his work like it's all basically all on youtube i haven't seen which i tried to find and perhaps like i just don't know where or if it's if it's like even available is the uh his telling of histoire do um have you seen oh, it yeah i feel like it might be lost right um, that's what i thought or it might have been burned. Yeah, one of those. Uh, you have a note here um, called, that just says Aeneas Nin smeared with heroin powder. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, that yeah, that's just like another messy bitch who lives her drama moment where apparently Kenneth Anger was like talking shit about like having to redo a take and inauguration of the Pleasure Dome because like Aeneas Nin's cheek was smeared in heroin powder. <laughs> uh, that was just like one thing I came across in my studies, um, which, you know, I wouldn't put it past her or any of them. Um, I think seeing these films work as like um, magical objects is really important because of how they're presented and how they're cut as like an alchemical process, but also the rituals depicted within them where it's uh, anger claims to have like had a ceremonial circle consecrated with both blood and cum in Lucifer Rising, which I think is important to note. Um, one of his earlier films, Rabbit's Moon from 1971, which is personally very important yes, to me and like tell my me, own. Tell me all about Rabbit's Moon. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think I've ever publicly told this story before, but basically I've had ever since I was younger, like a, a deep, strange lingering personal mythology when it comes to rabbits in the moon and it started when this sh this sketchy kid from high school sold me two rabbits and told me they were both men and i went away for a field trip and came back and they had given birth and eaten their young and it was traumatizing <laughs> for me and it was basically the cage was covered in blood and i think the mother had gone mad from eating her young so she was like twitching and i came back from like a high school like choir ski trip no to like this this carnage in my room that no one knew about because I was hiding the rabbits from my parents. And that was on the full moon. So ever since then, I have had important pivotal moments and crossroads in my life where literally every time I have to make like an important decision, I will happen upon a full moon with a dead rabbit completely under it. And it's happened multiple times and it's showed up in my dream life. Um, and it always signifies like a major shift in, in my life. And I had seen Rabbit's Moon at this point and Rabbit's Moon is this, and I've also in, in my own performance art, I've like recreated the Pierrot archetype from Rabbit's Moon. Um, but I think Rabbit's Moon in particular is a very singular expression of queer longing that is dissimilar from other projects in Anger's filmography. Uh, I mean, not necessarily dissimilar, but like it approaches queer longing in a singular way for me, where it's Pierrot is kind of queer coded and then like a drag character. Um, and he's and he's kind of using the archetypes of like Commedia dell'arte um, to explore this like impossibility of longing for the moon. And, and for me that like, you know, this this lunar ritual like deals a lot with queer longing and like kind of like nocturnal entities and like the subterranean and like the invisible or like, you know, the things that are obscured in darkness. And then you have like the presentation of like Columbina 
and the um, the masculine character where it's almost cucking Pierrot. Um, and all of this is set to, there's also the other interesting thing about a lot of Anger's work is he would like do multiple edits and release multiple versions and like kind of tweak the ritual, so to speak. Um, but the version that I'm most familiar with has these popular songs from the 1950s. And it's the first time I ever heard there's a moon out tonight by the Capris or like Bye Bye Baby by Mary Wells. And like, a, and using all of these, these songs that are about like, kind of like extreme testaments of devotion to address this like lunar cosmic queer longing or the impossibility of queerness and this utopian longing almost uh, through this like sad clown Pierrot character. So um, yeah, that's my story when it comes to that. I, I, I have like a, a deep fondness for that film in particular. Oh, wow. That is quite a story. And the, that is so traumatic. I'm just <laughs> and yeah, the Piero clown and also thinking about the masquerade aspect of inauguration of the Pleasure Dome and the mask and the costume itself as ritual like we're talking about and also the idea of um the mask as the and the clown as like a trickster god um so much trickster imagery and then with something like well I, we we'll, we'll talk about this uh, uh, we should maybe we should talk about the fascism stuff i mean um invocation of my demon brother right has anton levey as satanic majesty i mean i feel like there's so much there with anton levey and his quote-unquote problematic views and um of course, custom car commandos is KKK, uh, which is like a nod to the Brotherhood of the Ku Klux Klan and likening that to like homosexual brotherhood. And that's also present in fireworks, of course, with the militarized imagery and in Scorpio Rising with um the nazi imagery scorpio rising you know i maybe i'm a basic bitch but i think that's my favorite kenneth anger i mean it's just so like singular like it's you know it's scorpio rising it's like hot and you know leather and um all of these great pop songs and this gay satanic ritual which is also um you know, present, of course, in Invocation of My Demon Brother. And yeah, I thought, and then with Lucifer Rising and the music by Bobby Beausoleil, you know, you can't help but think of, you know, occult Nazi imagery when you recall anybody associated with Charles Manson. So, you know, Charles Manson, you know, of course, was, you know, famously trying to bring about a race war. Um, and was also using like very messy, <laughs> like acid fueled occult <laughs> practices. So, and there's there's stuff there too with Kenneth Anger has said, or you know, the, some of the quotes that have been pulled recently in his like in the wake of his death are you know the famous one where he says he's to the right of the KKK or something like that. Um, 
in his viewpoints and people don't know if he was just being like uh, you know a, like it was a Crowley-esque joke or if it, that was his if he was actually you know a fascist um and of course that's something that we've talked about also with Fred Halstead and yeah and the Wikipedia entry is kind of it, it doesn't really give much context it's like yeah, this opened him up to criticism of racism, but it might have just been like a Crowley-esque joke, but he also supported the Tibetan De- independence movement. And it's like, I okay, know, it's so bizarre. Like... <laughs> Who wrote that? Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so weird. Yeah, so, and then, you know, the Nazi, like the Third Reich was super into the occult and, um, it, you know, invoking these invocations and manifesting and ritual um which is why the third reich was so so ritualized in the swastika too as like an ancient symbol um it very very much based in quote-unquote idolatry which is um of course like one of the ten like one of the main ways that uh judaism uh is different than the religions that came before it um you know idolatry is very much against judaism you know catholicism which is heavily based in uh occults and you know object worship is like very much against uh, the essence sort of of the Jewish religion so it it yeah I mean I'm, I feel like I'm rambling here because there's so many places we could go but I, I wanted to talk with you kamikaze a little bit about that stuff I don't want us to be like afraid to be critical um and also I I, I want us to just like give a fair assessment of the work like what do we think about the nazi imagery and what do we think about the things that he said and where do we think that falls in with the occult ritual going on in the work totally i think that anger from what i've gathered um falls prey to this kind of uh aristocratic exotification that was prevalent in the occult like it's the idea of like you know um how do i put this like there's obviously rampant appropriation like you know um happening with like different world religions and then there's like the idea of like you know the seminal book like the golden bow and like you know kind of like like creating a link between all these world religions and like how that's like kind of like a dated means of anthropology but also very like generative for a lot of like you know like uh, spiritualist thought or occult thought or like you know uh theosophical society or just like our our conceptualizations of world religion and like certain archetypes that are prevalent and like ubiquitous throughout like uh, global theology um with kenneth i think that he fell prey to kind of maybe like a a, a noble savage approximation of certain um you know, like cultures. I think it's really interesting juxtaposing like his work to like the work of Maya Darren, who studied um, with like a pretty famous Haitian dancer and then became initiated as a voodoo priestess and um, also has a very interesting and singular relationship to ritual in cinema. Um, I, I, would, I would venture to say that anger is less successful 
in uh, having like a good racial politic in his work. I think that also he in Hollywood Babylon says some really crude things about Lupe Velez and her suicide that are racially charged about like her, like just like fabricating the fact that she ate 500 sleeping pills and like uh, drowned in a pool of her own vomit in a toilet. I think there was like some Lupe con carne was like the, the language that he used at one point. And like, you know, uh, it's obviously like a type of like provocation that's aged poorly and is a product of the time. Um, I don't think it's hard rewatching Scorpio rising. The Nazi imagery doesn't personally offend me, but I think it's interesting to hear your perspective on this as, as you know, a kinkster yenta, as we've discussed. Um, I think that it draws really interesting connections to the idea of how the swastika was used as a sigil or as an occult symbol in, in a way uh, to justify Fascist, and to make fascism palatable for a, a large group of people and to create this culture-bound syndrome. Um, I think also his repurposing of like, um, you know, like see movie biblical narratives in Scorpio Rising where like uh, Christ is giving sight to someone um, and juxtaposing that with this, this Nazi iconography and like leader of the pack, the song and like, you know, the mob mentality and like the idea of fraternity and and you know that's even explored in fireworks this like eros thanatos like death drive of like american masculinity and mob mentality and like uh military aesthetics like it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's in bad faith to me it doesn't seem like it's like an empty provocation no i don't think it is either like i i think where the what be, where it becomes complicated for me is that it is also clearly romantic and mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. But that said, um, like, I don't find any of the I don't find any of the Nazi imagery in his work, like, offensive. It's more so. Um, it, there's a friction there because it's. Which I'm, I'm, I believe is purposeful because of its relationship to sadomasochistic imagery and the way that gay men's leather culture has really come out of the aesthetics of world war ii and then the motorcycle culture that came out of that those aesthetics and i think he's very and then even gay skinhead culture too like exactly gay skinhead culture for sure yeah and i think that and bruce LaBruce is some as another artist that it that has played with this and i think i think where the friction comes up for me i know i keep saying that word but i think where it comes up for me is that having sometimes i feel that having an ambiguous or complicated relationship with the aesthetics of fascism is almost um it's like to be ambiguous about it is almost to like reify it. And sure. I think that it's just something that I don't think artists who aren't like cis white men can play with as freely. And I think that uh, there is something to be said 
for the way that cis white gay men historically and especially in leather culture have been so comfortable with that imagery in a way that even cis a cis white gay jewish man couldn't be um yeah yeah and i mean there's so much there too like you know even thinking about tom of finland and the tom of finland foundation and the way that the 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 nazi soldiers that tom of finland like fucked when he was a young man became objects in the fetish art and i don't know i guess i'm like curious in your perspective as a a gay man in king mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts about the the fetish the nazi fetish imagery in kenneth anger's work and like the actual leatherman's community's relationship with those images it's it's interesting for me because it's never something that i've come across personally in my own sexual exploits somehow like i've never really speaking of friction i've never really rubbed against it in in a meaningful or tangible way um you know thinking about fred halsted and like andy campbell's bound together and like leather is kind of resignification of military aesthetics and like a subverting of traditional hyper masculinity but also thinking of leather as like a memento mori and like you know even the cigarette as like you know uh a symbol of fatalism you know and like how these these death cults are perpetuated through these certain aesthetics um my personal opinion is i agree with you i think like i can't really think of like work that is like reappropriated or like subverted nazi imagery in a tangible way that hasn't been made by like a cis white gay man like nothing comes to mind you know um i mean even thinking of like i think david bowie flirted with like nazi propaganda at one point in his career um yeah that's interesting. And like, I don't know if it's just like a collective trauma. Like if it's the idea of like, like the sailors are obviously more ambiguous in fireworks and have less allegiance. Something interesting to also state is like, obviously Aleister Crowley had some backwards ideas about a lot of things, but I think his novel Moonchild, which is like a an important text for a lot of Thelema and for anger, um, culminates in this idea of like a war between uh, white magic and black magic. And, uh, the it's supposed to i think there's uh, a child that's supposed to be conceived that's a moon child that will like um usher in the new era of revelations and the the novel ends with the the white magicians or the the white magic practitioners joining the allied forces and the the black magic practitioners joining germany um and then with marjorie cameron after jack parsons died she created a cult of intentionally mixed raced uh occultist to try and create a moon child an interracial moon child to be to usher in this new era of revelations which is super complicated too um and that brings us back to like the manson race war stuff too yeah yeah the helper skelter (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i think what yeah i think what happens for me is um sometimes i don't know if these practitioners are like 
like <laughs> I feel like Manson's Helter Skelter is maybe like the most honest distillation of that. Like we're sort of hoping for this kind of war. <laughs> like we sort of want to bring yeah. this about, want to bring this change about. And, um, you know, of course, like the uh, association with L. Ron Hubbard and, you know, like all of these people like culminating and mixing together. I mean, you know, it's it's uncomfortable. I mean, it, it, it and this kind of thing also carries over even into like 80s goth subculture, right? Like Susie Sue had a moment with Third Reich imagery and uh, a, a lot of the, a lot of these a lot of artists who come out of this tradition, this like satanic tradition of the 50s and 60s do have those moments yeah. and it's so I think it's just like the the power of the Third Reich occult imagery is like so rich. And like I was saying before we recorded, it's such an uh, historical anomaly and exists really singularly in that period of history. And I think it's maybe as simple as like people who don't have that same kind of generational trauma because I think everybody of that generation had like World War II trauma, but I think it's just different for Jewish people. I think yeah. Um I think that if you if you don't I think people who just, you know, know that they maybe wouldn't have I mean <sighs> what am I trying to get at here? It's also interesting because gay men would have also been victimized by the Third Reich. At the same time, mm -hmm. there are so many gay Nazis. <laughs> but you can't really say the same of like Jewish people. Like there's there like you know it's it's like there's a different like um, there's not as much friction there, right? Do you think there's like something to be said about like? Uh generational trauma being absorbed into like widespread kink practices like even before we were recording we were talking about the night porter and like talking about like you know gay men's relationship to the idea of danger and like you know like cruising being predicated on risk you know and then like even like we can like dr draw a thread to contemporary ideas of like bug chasing and pornography mm -hmm. or like every shitty sappy aids drama that's been made in the wake of the you know it's pandemic like it's I, there's there's something about like mining trauma and like what the actual intent is and the ambiguity of intent which oh it's really interesting that the ambiguity of intention in scorpio rising is kind of mirrors the the ambiguity of like the uninitiated spectator in a lot of anger's work like is it is it coded as queer or is it coded as a cult like is it like an in is like an in is it esoteric? Is it meant to be an esoteric condemnation of fascism? And is it right. meant only for the initiated? Um, and and the maybe perceived irresponsibility of making such an ambiguous gesture, like which is also the perceived irresponsibility of creating a work like Hollywood Babylon. Yeah, and it's, you know, we're also dealing with such, I think that's the way that you put it is really good, like the the irresponsibility of the ambiguity. Um, because the ambiguity is also what makes it so enigmatic and fascinating, right? But at the same time, to be ambiguous about fascist imagery is like a slippery slope, <laughs> right? As we've totally, seen now totally. with the benefit of hindsight in 2023, which is not something that would have been present 
in the 50s and 60s and 70s where where you have like the literal survivors of World War II still alive and very much present in the conversation. And this is something I talked about a lot with Nayland Blake in our episode that we did on the um, the Eyes of Laura Mars. Like, it was just so much more common. He was just talking about how when he was, you know, a teenager in the 70s, it was just so much more common to meet people whose parents were Holocaust survivors or who had been in World War II. You know, it was really present. So the idea of addressing that in like really confrontationally was very subversive at the time that Kenneth Hager was making this work. Whereas now to use fascist imagery is completely unsubversive. Like it's not subversive at all. It's like very mainstream, very like tech bro, crypto bro, like uncool, you know? So we're also like working in a very different context here. Well, and it echoes back to conversations that we had about like the transgressive now being mined as reactionary. Yes. Um in in contemporary culture. And um and it also I I will mention that uh American, a member of the American Nazi Party when Scorpio Rising came out condemned the film um, and was very mad about it and That's like badass. had like a whole tirade about it. So there is that. Right. Um, <laughs> but that I don't think that really clarifies. And maybe it is a question of posterity. Maybe it is like a contemporary lens that renders it more irresponsible. I think so. Then. Yeah. That's really my take on it is I think that viewing it in, in historical context is really key. Whereas, like, just showing Scorpio rising now, like, I th- I think it would be, I think there needs to be explanation and context and understanding of who this artist was and what was going on at the time in in regards to these things. So, yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I mean, I think now, I mean, now if someone made something like scorpio rising yeah i mean it's just a completely different context like you said like the reactionary like the the subversive being mined for the reactionary this idea that like you know the political correctness movement of the 90s has like become the like quote-unquote woke movement and that's like the dominant ideology and um you know to to kind of roll with that is like inherently problematic now and it's also interesting that a lot of these films that are um you know a lot of these films that are coming out um that are uh overtly socially conscious uh, in in a way that appeals to a demographic that doesn't exist and has (laughs) so much needless exposition um immediately dates the film and like and and like just immediately ages its its sentiment and also makes it l- less likely for it to shine favorably in posterity. And I will say that a lot of, you know, I think what works about Kenneth Anger's films is that they operate on a subliminal and visceral level. So um, I don't know. It's so interesting. It's like, I feel like a lot of contemporary film doesn't really do that anymore because it has to be delineated or the narrative has to be uh needlessly demarcated totally uh to the point of redundancy um like we need to take a stance against this 
Even though it's being yes. made by it's like a- Disney or something, which is like a fucking fascist corporation. <laughs> But a lot of these films come off as like a sternly worded HR email. Yeah. You know, like, and that is against the subversive spirit that we're exploring here, for better or for worse. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of, like I said, I think that's part of what's so um, fascinating about and what's going to continue to be resonant about Kenneth Anger's work is the the friction there. Um, the, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, like Scorpio Rising, is, it's clearly not like, aren't Nazis great? That's clearly not like the thesis <laughs> of the film. But what it what the <laughs> where where the conflict does arise is like the um you know romantic and hot nature in which these they're it's depicted while also but but then the fascination there is like while also being, you know, um compared to Christianity and um fascism like comparing christianity and fascism and uh interrogating the like homosocial homosocial brotherhood that happens in like militarized settings yeah and how the other or the marginalized sexual identity is susceptible to predominant social narratives and, and could easily be assimilated into such a mentality in in a means of belong or as a means of belonging Yeah, absolutely. And that's continues to be like an extremely rich territory. So, I mean, that's why I love Scorpio Rising. And that's why that's my favorite Kenneth Anger film is because I feel like it's like a distillation of all of this stuff in the one in that one film. Um, And I also love Lucifer Rising. I mean, come on, that score. like. And to think that he composed that in prison. Right. I know. It's crazy. That Bobby Bosola. Yeah, that's like, I, oh. And also it's kind of funny that his name in French kind of means like handsome son. Yeah. Bobby handsome son. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bobby Bosley was like such a gay icon at the time, I feel like. And, um, it, and then custom car commandos, you know, like, it's 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 a tr- like it's, I hate to use this word again, but it's like a troll, you know. Like it's such a beautiful, like gore. Like it's it's so beautiful that video. If you haven't seen it, like just look it up on YouTube. It's only three minutes long, and it's like so gorgeous and meditative and like feminine. And then you just have the titles like germ, like a, a recalling German. But then also likening itself to the KKK, you know, like it's supposed to make you, you know, uncomfortable. And I think I guess the question I would just pose and I think what a lot of younger queer people are posing now is like how transgressive is that really um, to just like, you know, discomfort, like for the sake of it. Um, how transgressive is that really? And I don't even know what the answer to that is because I'm like sort of um I don't know I'm feeling my age you know like I still find like I still find that worthy of pursuing um but I also like want to listen to the young to the youth and um respect them and and hear them out and of course they're not a monolith but yeah 
Just some thoughts on that. Yeah, and I'm 33, and I feel like Same. we've had this conversation before about, about, yeah. So, I mean, like, I think we're in an interesting kind of, like, liminal space generationally where I think, like, the efforts of the transgressive movement are important, but they also are, you know, were very much filtered through a lens of whiteness for a long time. And I think the idea of, like, meaningful post-transgressive work in, like, contemporary art has to come from, like, a more inclusive like holistic kind of like uh, array of perspectives and has to have, I think ethical transgression is possible. And I think it's really interesting. Yes. And I think people who bristle at that idea are lazy or, you know, like racist or like, you know, like lack originality. Um, and like, I, that's why I think you see like the cringe Lord aesthetic becoming so prevalent, sadly because like, it's still like a lot of white guys who are like, well, why can't we be provocative? Like, I don't get it anymore. Like, it, why can't we be, right. why can't we reclaim misogyny? Like, <laughs> isn't that cool? Like, <laughs> Yeah, and then of course, like the the question that's a, is how transgressive is that really to like reinforce the dominant narrative of things, even though it might feel transgressive in like a leftist queer circle, but to the world at large, like how transgressive is that really? And, you know, before we recorded too, I was thinking, speaking of like ethical transgression, I was thinking of the artist M. Lamar, who I bring up a lot on this show, who I think is like one of the most important living artists of our time. And I think is someone who, you know, is really mining the fetishistic nature of transatlantic slave trade imagery in a way that no one else is and to i would consider like a spiritual successor of artists like kenneth anger who are using i mean i would consider slavery imagery is is like linked to fascism i mean the third reich like literally used methods from the transatlantic slave trade and studied them so i would consider them tied together historically and that that's an example of an artist who i think is using that stuff to such an actually transgressive end um yeah yeah and we've had this conversation before where i feel like a lot of the really important work happening with transgressive art um in uh, just like our contemporary setting is happening with queer performance artists and it's not happening necessarily with cinema because of the interference of capital and like you know like streaming networks and like you know ai at this point i mean like i think obviously like you know the work of sam delaney is a great like you know like precursor to this idea of contemporary ethical transgression but i mean obviously you know we both love christine we both love m lamar we we love a lot of people who are creating these kind of like live very somatically charged experiences that mine the transgressive without being exclusionary or like um uh without having empty provocation empty provocation exactly and you know john waters always says too like don't shock people just for the sake of it like there there should be a reason um so on that note we this is just a little little bit a little bit about Kenneth Anchor. Um, I don't think to like, I think we covered a lot of ground. We for, did, you know, yeah, for slapping this to, together. Yeah, yeah I think so. Kamikaze is good... like going to Spain tomorrow. 
I'm going to Spain tomorrow. I'm a mess. I'm 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 chaos magic city. Um, we're both, you know, we're both mired by logistics. And I think we we meandered around the general perimeter of what we needed to discuss, I think. Absolutely. And as we always do in a sexy way. In a sexy <laughs> way. Um, just can you just remind people where to find you on the internet? Hey, yeah. So I'm Kamikaze Jones. You can find me on Instagram at Kamikaze Jones underscore, I think. I think I have a Petsky underscore there. And also the same thing on Twitter. And I'm also, you know, as I said, the arts editor for Wussy Magazine. Um, I am leaving for Spain to do my first international residency tomorrow. Um, and I will be doing a text-based uh, project that will incorporate the mythopornographic and the idea of cruising ecologies and how they may map onto sacred spaces. So revisiting Kenneth Anger has been fruitful for me, as Perfect. you can imagine. That's kind of what I was hoping. I was like, you know, <laughs> hopefully this will fit into both like both work that we're respectively doing. And you know where to find me. Girls Guts Jallo on Instagram and Girls Guts Jallax on Twitter because your girl was banned. Um, like, you know, a year and a half ago and now there's an X there. So, <laughs> and, you know, sign up for my, if you like what I'm doing, sign up for my Patreon. That's where I make most of my money when I'm not, um, chained to my desk doing various freelance projects for some distribution companies, uh, patreon.com slash girls guts jello check it out support me i have a really cool discord community of like the biggest perverted freaks you could ever <laughs> hope to meet um i'm like constantly in awe of how um insane those people are in a good way in a good way love you all uh and with that note thank you so much for joining me kamikaze and we'll reconvene when you come back to the states to talk about wakefield pool Absolutely. Yes. We're saving Wakefield pool for, for midsummer fire Island shenanigans, I Perfect. think fittingly. Perfect. So, but always an unmitigated delight to, to be in cahoots with you. So we will definitely talk soon. Always. Oh, yes.